everyone, and welcome back to Then Again. I am Marie Bartlett, and I am the director of the Ada May Ivester Education Center here at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Today, I have with me Sandy White, Education Director at the Coastal Georgia Historical Society. This society manages several different museums, including the World War II Homefront Museum on St. Simons Island, Georgia. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's my pleasure. Happy to be here. Could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and about your museum? Absolutely. So we are the Coastal Georgia Historical Society, and we've been around for over 50 years. And we manage several historic sites as museums, including the St. Simons Lighthouse Museum, which just celebrated its 150th birthday, and our newer historic Coast Guard station at East Beach on St. Simons Island. And that is home to the World War II Homefront Museum, which is a relatively new museum. It opened in 2018. And uh, it tells the story of coastal Georgia, and in particular, our county, Glynn County, during World War II, and focuses on the home front. So not only what civilians did at that time, but also what uh, military bases and training activities were happening here. Which is fantastic, because today we are going to be talking about the home front during World War II and the American Girl doll, Molly McIntyre. So these two things go hand in hand because Molly McIntyre is one of the original historical characters from the American Girl doll brand, whose story begins in 1944 and then continues until the end of the war in 1945. Her six book series chronicled what life was like on the American home front for a nine-year-old girl and her family. Now they were living in the fictional town of Jefferson, Illinois, so I'm sure it's going to be a little bit different in coastal Georgia than it was in Illinois, but I guess you know, we get to have some compare and contrast. We get to throw in some Georgia history to that today, which is fantastic since we are both the Georgia museums. Yeah, I guess that, you know, today we will be exploring the World War II home front through the lens of Molly McIntyre. And then we'll see what the books got right, what they got wrong, and how it might have differed between Illinois and Georgia. So in the first book of the series, Meet Molly, in the first chapter, there is an infamous scene that everyone I've talked to who has read these books remembers because I think everyone has had this scarring experience as a child. And Molly, she's just sitting at the table for supper and there is a pile of disgusting looking mashed turnips on her plate. And these turnips had come from her family's victory garden, which they had planted in their backyard. But according to Molly, sadly, the garden didn't turn out that well. She says that a lot of the plants wilted in the sun and that the only things to survive were the radishes, lima beans, and turnips. Their housekeeper had made these mashed turnips for supper and told Molly that she is not allowed to get up from the table until she's eaten all of her turnips. So Molly is sitting there for quite some time until her mother gets home from work and her mom then reheats the turnips and says that she thinks that they can spare some of the butter and sugar rations to help make the turnips taste a little bit better. So can you tell us about the kinds of foods that were rationed and how was rationing enforced? Because obviously this is something that affects everyday life in America. Definitely. So, so poor Molly, she had to try and eat turnips without any sugar in them. And this is very common across the entire United States and, and all of allied countries. Um, sugar was the very first thing to be rationed in 1942. So sugar uh, rationing happened throughout the war uh, and actually after the war as well as global systems were starting to be repaired and, and you could start to get goods imported from other countries and not just from the United States and, and have such a limited supply. Uh, so yeah, sugar is definitely one of the things that we had to do without 
during World War II. Other rationed goods in, include butter, like she like her mother suggested. Butter, coffee was another one that happened very early on in the war. Uh, meat and canned goods. So they're eating turnips from the Victory Garden because they can't have canned vegetables. So other farmers that are better at growing vegetables would normally grow them and can them and you would be able to purchase them. But canned goods were rationed during the war. And rationing um, is not just food. It's also things like tires and shoes and gasoline were also rationed. But I think especially for a child, food is is the most kind of prominent thing because we eat three meals a day usually and and we have to deal with you know changes to our normal everyday diet due to the war. So the office that was in charge of rationing during World War II was the OPA, the Office of Price Administration, and they set the regulations on rationing. So they were the ones that set prices and prices would change. So in order to buy a ration good, you not only had to have the money to purchase the ration good, and, and that price was set by the OPA so that it would be a fair price for all Americans, but you also had to have your stamps or your coupons. So you had to have your ration books. Now, each American got a ration book, whether you were a child, a baby, a mom, a dad, grandmother, every person got a ration book, and then usually someone uh, ahead of the family would get that ration, all those ration stamps together and go grocery shopping with them. So you had to have those two things in order to purchase ration goods. And it was very complicated, shall we say, especially since the um, the points for items change depending on scarcity, uh, how much they were. So you would have maybe butter be uh, 15 points, and then at other times it would be 30 points. And that could really change, you know, whether you could make a birthday cake with butter or not. So um, you really had to be resourceful during that. And, you know, the OPA did their best. They recognized that this was a very difficult thing for Americans to deal with. And locally, these rationing restrictions were enforced by volunteer OPA boards. So these war price rationing boards had the responsibility of trying to make sure that people were abiding by rationing rules. And their volunteer boards dealing with a lot of bureaucratic issues and red tape, as well as people not wanting to ration. So there was a decent amount of black market selling during World War II of all sorts of things. But really, I think what we take away from this time is most Americans, even though it was deeply unpopular to ration goods, realized that it was very important to do. So, you know, even though the uh, rumors about black markets were rampant and, and it was quite an issue that the government dealt with, really only about 20% of things ended up on the black market, which considering um, how many things were rationed is fairly good for that time. Now, can you confirm this for me? Was chicken rationed during the war? Because I believe that chicken was the only meat that wasn't rationed. And therefore, I think that's why my grandma uses it in so many dishes. I don't think chicken was rationed. So normally we think of things like, so meats definitely were. The ham was rationed, especially uh, because ham can be cured. So basically, if you think of Things that were rationed are either things that we primarily get from foreign countries. So something like sugar or coffee that are grown in more tropical regions, things like dairy products are going to be um, you know, used 
and sent to the troops. And that's especially true of canned goods, not only because canned goods are nutritious things that can be sent overseas, not only supporting our troops, but allied troops worldwide, but because of the materials used in canning. So tin and aluminum are things that would be used elsewhere in the war effort. And so they didn't want to can't use cans and they wanted you to have fresh fruits and vegetables. Fresh fruits and vegetables actually were never rationed. So if you could find them, um, you could purchase them without having rationing coupons, but meats definitely were rationed. One of the funniest stories that is recorded in our museum is about a woman who when she was a child didn't really understand how rationing worked and she really loved lamb chops. And so when she was asked what she wanted for Christmas, she asked her mother for lamb chops, having no idea how difficult it would be to save up rationing coupons in order to purchase a lamb chop. And you were able to do that if you scrimped and saved and didn't purchase other things with your rationing points. Um, so she was able to get lamb chops for Christmas. And now, you know, as a, as a mature woman who has grandchildren of her own, realizes how much her mother sacrificed and her family sacrificed in order to have a special Christmas treat. There are so many things that we don't think about how it affected everyday life, but there's just so many things that go into it, especially in America on the, the home front in World War II. In the fourth book of the original series titled Happy Birthday, Molly, a girl named Emily Bennett comes to live with the McIntyres for a little bit. Emily is from London, England, and her parents sent her away to live with her aunt in America. But her aunt was sick in the hospital with pneumonia, so she went to live with the McIntyre family until her aunt recovered. Now, I know it was common for children living in London to be sent away out of the city during the Battle of Britain. Usually they were sent, it seems like, to the English countryside. You know, when we think of Narnia, like that's the, the whole beginning mm -hmm. of, of Narnia. But was it common for British children to be sent to America for safety? Or did it, that happen at all? It, it did happen. It definitely happened. Um, but it was not as common as, as you might imagine. So the there were millions of children that were evacuated from cities in Great Britain to the countryside. So millions of children were evacuated to the countryside with the thought that they would be safer from the bombing that especially London was experiencing during the Battle of Britain uh, in 1940. There were about 2,600 children that were evacuated to foreign countries and mostly Commonwealth countries for Great Britain. So Canada, Australia, and those sorts of countries. But the United States got about 800 children. So there were 800 children. It's not a small number, but it's certainly not the millions of children that were evacuated to the countryside. And yes, I think it's very funny that you know we know as Americans of this possibility because of this book, because of Molly's book when really I think the majority of Americans that know about the evacuation of children to the countryside, as you said, is, is because of the Narnia books, um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and, and the Pevensey children having to go and, and live away, and, and how much that affected them being away from their parents, and of course, finding Narnia as a result. So you know, such a small part of that book, but certainly leaves an impression, just like I think this English child living with Molly leaves an impression on her and, and what it would feel like to be away from your parents and so far away from them during the war. Because I think in the book, it really, Molly has always seen the war as something very far away. 
as something that her dad went and was experiencing, but it was, it was a whole ocean away. And then Emily comes over and the family has blackout drills where they're, you know, practicing what they would do if America was to be bombed. But Emily's had to experience that when it was actually happening. And she, you know, is incredibly scared. And Molly's like, it's not that big of a deal. Like, and Emily's like, no, no, it, no, it is. So obviously, it's a very big deal. Mm-hmm. so as I was saying, the McIntyre family, they participate in blackout drills. Now, can you tell us what exactly goes into a blackout drill? How did families practice these? Was this a community-wide thing? And what would someone do? These are community-wide efforts uh, and nationwide efforts. So communities all across the nation would have had volunteers in the civil defense and were instructed by you know, local civil defense boards to practice blackouts. And this was important in various places for different reasons. Um, so in some place like Illinois, where Molly is supposed to be from, this is um, they start practicing blackouts because of the experience of England. So when England is experiencing these massive bombing raids, the idea for blackouts is that all light is extinguished. So all of your table lamps, all of your street lights are either extinguished or there are covers that are put on them so that they're facing downward. This is true of car headlights. They have sort of half of them blacked out on top so that the headlight is not pointing to the sky. And the idea is that these civilian areas and especially factories, which could be targets of air raids, are disguised by darkness. So instead of seeing sort of spots of brighter lights, a plane that is flying overhead and trying to target certain areas is no longer able to accurately bomb anywhere because everything is blacked out. So very early on, the United States starts adopting these blackout drills and they they do them periodically. You'll hear um, big air raid sirens. So they install these sirens, maybe police sirens would be going around and they do those, you know, say for five, 10 minutes. And this is everybody's warning to extinguish all lights and um, there, these civilian defense volunteers would go around and, and enforce it and let people know if they could, you know, see behind their curtains and see that they had lights on, just in case, you know, if these were to be determined that they were needed, if we were really experiencing air raids from Axis powers, that we would be able to, you know, call a blackout and have it actually be successful. Here on the Georgia coast, it's even more pressing to practice blackouts. And they not only did practices, but they did active blackouts along the U.S. coast. And that's because German U-boats were patrolling along the East Coast. So almost as soon as the United States enters World War II, Germany sees an opportunity to attack. So they are ready to send their U-boats out, and they do when they start attacking uh, U.S. merchant shipping. So, of course, U.S. merchant shipping is trying to cross the Atlantic and produce you know, war material and then deliver it to allied nations across the Atlantic. And Germany doesn't want that to happen. So the U-boats are incredibly successful at the beginning, first of all, because these merchant ships are traveling alone without protection from uh, naval or Coast Guard vessels. And even though the ships are under blackout orders, the coast is not. So you end up having these ships that are silhouetted against this bright coastline And so you can see the silhouette very clearly. And U-boats 
unfortunately take down, you know, hundreds of ships along the East Coast at the very beginning of 1942. And uh, so coastal blackouts become a very important part of safety at the beginning of World War II. So exactly what I was talking about at the beginning of this, where you black out street lights, you pull down all of your curtains, you turn off your lights inside. You know, it's incredibly important for factories that are trying to run 24-7 to turn off their lights as much as possible, to, you know, shade their glass roofs and things so that these ships can travel a little bit more safely along the coast. What ends up happening is ships travel in convoy, and with convoys, you have Navy destroyers. You also have air coverage as they are closer, so air coverage consisting of both airplanes as well as airships, and we did have an airship base here in Glynn County, Naval Air Station Glencoe, and they would travel with them all the way from uh, North Florida through South Carolina until they reached coverage of the North Carolina base. So the ships become much more safe out on the water and blackouts stop being as big of a deal, but they were very important while the ships were, were traveling alone and, and trying to travel under cover of darkness and not be attacked by a torpedo. Absolutely. No one, no one wants that to happen. Um, <laughs> No one wants their ship to be attacked. And I hadn't thought about how that would be pressing for Navy as well. I always thought of that as something that was much more of an Air Force issue that, you know, having planes flying overhead, not even the idea that boats, you also needed to black out for for Navy. Mm -hmm. It was really interesting. So as I kind of mentioned earlier in the story of Molly, both of her parents are working for the war effort. Her dad, who was a doctor in their town before the war, is now taking care of men overseas in England. And her mom, who was a housewife before the war, is now working for the Red Cross during the book series. So can you tell us a little bit more about what women did in the workforce and on the home front during World War II? So World War II is the first time that we are really paying attention to women in the workforce and particularly the industrial workforce. So women have, of course, worked and done lots of work. Women have done lots of work over the centuries uh, in many different fields. But for the first time, the U.S. government is really enlisting women to come and work in heavy industrial, in the heavy industrial sector, which is uh, something that we haven't really seen before. Of course, women in the workforce are exemplified by the famous Rosie the Riveter, and um, riveting was something that women absolutely were recruited to come and do, particularly on airplanes and ships. So women are out in force, and they're not just secretaries. They are not just, you know, weather people. They're doing all sorts of interesting things and really really dangerous things, which I think people, you know, imagine that women have been shielded from these dangerous or very heavy lifting jobs from before. And women really flourish during World War II. They love this opportunity to do work, not only because it is helping the allies win the war, but because they realize they're good at it. And it's interesting and new and different. So you have women that are, are nurses that are active and, and women have been nurses for a long time, but they are there on the war you know, on the war front and doing all these things. So in Georgia, since we'll talk about all of Georgia, not just coastal Georgia, factories, big deal. So near Atlanta, the Bell Bomber factory had so many women that worked there. You have other airplane manufacturing facilities throughout uh, the state of Georgia. You have a lot of women that join women's auxiliary groups, doing everything from 
being weather forecasters. And um, down here, interestingly enough, some of them ran carrier pigeon facilities uh, for communication with carrier pigeon. So unique and, and intelligence job. But you also had women here in coastal Georgia. The big opportunity was working at the shipyard. So we're here on the coast. We are building ships. And in Brunswick and in Savannah, you have Liberty Shipyard. So Liberty ships are these massive cargo ships that are supposed to be built very cheaply and quickly, and they do build them incredibly quickly. And they could not have done that without the work of women. So instead of riveting, they are welding the ships together, which is basically melting these pieces of steel together, and that makes it even quicker. And these women, their oral histories are incredible. They talk about how it's almost like sewing, which is something that they're used to doing. They're sewing these two pieces of metal together. Now, of course, it's a little bit different because rather than a needle and thread, you have this incredibly flaming hot lead and you have to wear a welding helmet so that you don't get eye burn from the, um, <laughs> the hot metal and also the very bright metal that is being welded together. But um, they are so excited to be on these ships and to be helping out and think absolutely nothing of any injury that they might receive, having to climb up to the top of a ship's mast and do welding up there. So they really step up and step in on the home front. And so this is not just in Georgia, it's everywhere. And what's really exciting too is because the federal government is mandating most of the work or is, is directing most of the work in these factories, you get national level legislation that really directs who is getting wages, what wages they're being paid, and who is allowed to work. So what that means is you get these incredibly high defense industry wages, which are given not only to men that are able to work if they're not in the military for whatever reason, but also to women. So women are able to save up their wages from the war. And oftentimes they'll go and either start a family afterwards with these wages and be set up really well, or they'll go and get an education. So they are able to pay for themselves to go and get an education and do something else, or maybe come back into the workforce if they can find a job after all of the GIs come back from World War II. The other exciting thing is this is not just white women. So we think about Rosie the Riveter and she's obviously an iconic character, but the federal government mandates that all races have to be able to be hired into defense industries because these are federal wages this is a federal rule. So especially in some place like segregated Georgia, we're in the deep South. This is new. This is different. So both men and women of all colors, and particularly Black Americans, are able to enjoy defense industry wages and earn a lot more doing this job than they would have prior to the war. Now, are women still paid the exact same as men, or is there still a little bit of pay difference between the two genders? There is definitely a pay difference. We could not ask for that much during the 1940s. We have not been to the 1960s and, and the women's equity movement quite yet. We have to get through the 1950s to get to that. Um, and it's something, obviously, that we're still fighting for today, pay equity. But it's a lot, it's a lot more than they would have been paid prior to the war. And I think it's so interesting that you mentioned welding as being such a huge industry because Rosie the Riveter's cousin, Wendy the Welder, she does not get that much acclaim. Even though there were so many women doing welding jobs, somehow it's it, Rosie the Riveter, they got, she got the song and the movie 
and Wendy didn't, so she doesn't get remembered as much. <laughs> I know, to our eternal dismay here that we don't have the alliterative woman who is quite as famous, but we we pay attention to her a lot. And we we talk about Rosie because she she at least leads us into the conversation about welding. So Molly and her family throughout the entire book series are very concerned about doing patriotic things and they didn't want to appear unpatriotic by doing other certain things like going on unnecessary car trips that was considered you know to be unpatriotic or going on you know vacations was considered to be unpatriotic but doing things like tin drives was considered patriotic or decorating your Christmas tree in red, white, and blue was, was patriotic. So what are some things that families did to be patriotic on the home front? And what are some things that families avoided doing to make sure that they were looking patriotic and not unpatriotic? Certainly. So all of the things that we've talked about so far are things that would have been considered patriotic. So whether that's you're actually following rationing regulations or yes, you're participating in tin drives, any sort of scrap drives are very, um, you know, they collected food fat for rockets at a time. They collected tin. If you would think about large piles of chewing gum wrappers and aluminum foil, they collected, they collected paper, now, whether all of these things were necessarily used in the war effort, I think is, is questionable, but it made sure that everybody, no matter your age or your gender, um, had a role to play. And so this is especially important for children. If you want to take a look at anything that's patriotic or unpatriotic, one of my favorite things to come out of World War II are all of the posters. So Rosie the Riveter being one of them. But there are just an incredible amount of posters that detail exactly what is patriotic and unpatriotic. So the government wanted you to know what they didn't want you to do and then wanted to encourage you to do what they wanted you to do. And not only are these incredible pieces of art, they're, they're beautiful and fascinating posters, but they really tell a story of what's going on at different points in the war, depending on when the poster is made. So of course you have posters about rationing, you know, saying everybody do their role, you know, showing a woman planting a victory garden and, and helping out by, you know, having fresh fruits and vegetables so that she can follow rationing regulations. There are posters of women joining the war effort, whether that's in auxiliary groups or going to work in a factory. There are, of course, also posters for military recruitment. You've got Uncle Sam shows up several times in posters, various parts of the military do recruitment. You, um, almost anything that you can imagine that happened during World War II shows up on a poster. So they really do tell the story of, of what's happening on the home front and are a great way to visually explain that. One of my favorite things that people really got into during World War II, which kind of blows my mind, is war bonds. So this is something that also students and, and young people could get into. So a war bond cost $18.75. And in 10 years, so after the war, you'd be able to return your war bond and receive $25. And so that's a 2.9% return on your investment. And this $18.75 is going straight to the U.S. government. So this is helping them fund the war effort. War bonds, you don't just have to have straight up $18.75 because that's quite a bit of money back in World War II. You would collect stamps. So they had war bond stamps and they came in amounts of 10 cents, 25 cents, 50 cents. You'd collect all those stamps until you had $18.75 worth of stamps. And then you would have enough to purchase a war bond. 
This was so successful that the U.S. government raised $185.7 billion in war bonds. And to give you an idea of what, that's a big number today, but an approximate amount in today's dollars would be $1.5 trillion. So this is all money that Americans are loaning, basically, to the federal government in order to support the war effort. And that it blows my mind. That's a huge number. And if you wonder, you know, why we were able to jump in during the middle of World War II, really, since the war had been going on for a few years, and participate so fully, not only because we, you know, had factories, we had farms, we had fishermen to supply the war effort, you know, really to be this breadbasket for Europe um, and to support our troops as they go over to the Pacific, but also because we have this incredible nation of citizens that back the war and put their money where their mouth is too. So not only you know, working for the war effort, but then also donating the wages that they earn back to the war effort. So really kind of exemplifies how much people believed in the cause during World War II. Absolutely. It, throughout the entire Molly series, as I read it as a, as a kid and reviewed it for this podcast, it became very obvious to me about how everyone was cheering for the red, white, and blue, and how there was really this rally around the flag effect that America had been bombed at Pearl Harbor. They felt attacked. It was this, it was no longer this thing that was far away. It was something that was close to home. And while there was still really no action other than, than Pearl Harbor on the, in, in the U.S., it was still this huge deal that still affected everyday life because we were talking about all, all these things on the home front that changed where people had to really make it a point in their daily lives to support the war effort and thought about it in pretty much almost every action it, it feels like with you know what are you going to eat what are you going to wear you know what are you going to spend your money on what are you going to go and do for entertainment it, it was all affected by the war Absolutely. It, every every facet of life really was affected by World War II. And it's a fascinating case study in how American culture changed after that, too, because for the first time, you have so many people, you know, a huge amount of American military going overseas and experiencing, you know, war in Europe as well as war in the Pacific. That's, that's a long way away to be over in Japan and the Philippines. It really changes their perspective. And then you know, as they come back with the GI bills and and them moving to different parts of the country, you know, they've been training all over the United States too. It's not like you train in your hometown and then you get sent off. It really changes the American military and, and where we are as well. It changes our economy. We realize how powerful we can be. And, you know, we're coming out of the Great Depression. The United States was really still hurting by the time we end up in World War II, you know, despite all of the new New Deal projects that had been going on and, and had slowly, you know, moved the United States economy forward, World War II is really what broke us out of the Great Depression and moved us into sort of the global superpower that we are. And none of that would have happened without the support of efforts on the home front. Um, so it's just fascinating everything that went on at that time. Now, what did people do for fun during the war? I know Molly in the book series was obsessed with going to the movies. She wanted to be glamorous, like all these movie stars that she saw. 
it seemed like she went to the movies a fair amount, like even in just reading in the books. And how did that Hollywood culture, this kind of, because the 1940s and 50s are kind of considered to be like that golden age of Hollywood. How did that affect the home front, the war effort, and just people's lives on the home front? Sure. I'll answer the the first question first. What did people do for fun? Movies are definitely something that people did for fun. Sort of one of the most iconic scenes, I think, in home front history is a USO dance. So United Service Organizations had, you know, multiple locations in even a city. So there were places that service members while they're in town can go and have recreation that was planned specifically for them, as well as, you know, get refreshments and and support while they're in town. So multiple USO offices and yes, USO dances. I think, you know, dancing was much more popular (laughs) back then than it is today. Lots of fans, you know, touring the United States. And this is USO offices that are segregated too. So you have some, you know, colored offices that are USO locations that specifically cater to Black service members, as well as, of course, white. And so that was present here in our city of Brunswick, uh, which is in Glen County. That's our main county seat is Brunswick. So you have all of that going on. And you have a lot of women who recall that that's their favorite part of World War II. They, they say it in memory saying, I feel kind of bad, but I had a blast. You know, there were all these young men that were so dashing in their uniforms and they wanted to dance with us and their new men every week. And isn't this, you know, they had a, a good time that they, you know, had this backdrop of, you know, obviously knowing that things were bad overseas and, and we're losing service members' lives and we're fighting a war and and it's a serious thing. But the purpose of USO organizations was that you would have fun and that service members are having a good time and, you know, bringing a bit of levity and into their work. So they apparently did a pretty good job of that. For home front workers, I think movies are, are probably the big thing. So they would have gone to dances and concerts and things that are being put on but movies are are big. So here on Brunswick, we had two movie theaters and they both ran nearly 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that's because our shipyard, which employed nearly 16,000 people over the course of the war, ran 24 seven. So you would have lines of people, um, you know, imagine women in their workday coveralls waiting in line to go see a movie after they get off their they're being paid these great wages. Why not go and see the movies and you know experience the glamour of Hollywood? Here also, we know that one of the movie theaters was the only public place in town that has air conditioning. <laughs> so would have been very popular to go to, not only to, to see the movie, but to, to get out of the heat of the day, um, which is important no matter where you are in Georgia, if you're here in the summertime. Definitely, I know we appreciate air conditioning these days. The other thing to note about movies is that they are, you play newsreels at the beginning of movies. So one of the best ways for you to get news is not only through the radio, but if you want to see what war looks like, you go to the movies and the newsreel plays before your movie and you get just a snippet of what's happening overseas. So it's a really important sort of cultural way to stay in touch with the story of war. Movie stars themselves were also very instrumental in 
keeping up the spirits of the American public. So certainly children would have loved seeing movie stars, but adults as well can get starstruck. And at this time, you have movie stars that join Mormon drives. And so not only are they traveling overseas to cheer up servicemen, to perform for them and to say hello, and they encourage service members to buy war bonds too, but they go on these train routes all along, all across America, where it's a war bond drive and they're encouraging people to buy war bonds. One of the celebrities that came here, which She's not as, as big of a name today as she was back then, but she would have been a really big name is Veronica Lake. So Veronica Lake came to the city of Brunswick. She did a whole tour across the South on a train. She came to our, our big hotel that was here called the Oglethorpe Hotel. And she, we have a picture of her behind a microphone, you know, that classic old fashioned microphone encouraging the public to buy war bonds. The other thing that celebrities do is they, they of course, influence culture. And so Veronica Lake is a perfect example of this. She had this famous blonde hair that this, you know, those Hollywood waves that we say are Hollywood waves. She's like one of the first ones, if not the first one to have these beautiful blonde Hollywood waves that just flow down her shoulder, sort of shield her eye in that glamorous way. And she cuts her hair during World War II. And the reason she does this is the U.S. government asked her to do it. They say, will you cut your hair and style it in a way that would be the way that a woman worker would do? Will you do that for us? And so she does. She cuts her hair and she puts it up and back and shows how you would style it underneath a head covering, under a scarf or under a bandana, which would be what you would have to wear if you were a riveter or a welder to keep sparks from igniting your hair on fire. So you can't have this glamorous Hollywood waves if you're a woman worker in the war. And so she is one of these Hollywood celebrities that, you know, is asked and tasked with influencing American culture into helping the war effort. You know, in small ways, this is you know, you can have long hair and put it up in a bun and under a bandana, that doesn't matter. But it's just very visual and sort of iconic change to her look during the war. Yes, I had no idea about Veronica Lake, but now I'm intrigued. I, I want to go look it up and, and look at pictures and see what, you know, the before and after shots. <laughs> she was beautiful. So can you tell us a little bit more about your museum and how one might go about visiting your several museums? <laughs> Sure, we have two museums, um, but the one that is most important to our conversation today is, of course, the World War II Homefront Museum. So it's located on St. Simons Island at East Beach, which is our actually main beach parking lot. So it was a Coast Guard station and was an observation, observation station for beach safety. Our museums are open seven days a week. So Monday through Saturday, we are open from 10 to 5, and Sundays are open from 12 to 5. And tickets are $12 if you just want to visit the Homefront Museum. We sell a combination ticket with our iconic Lighthouse Museum as well, and that's $20 for the combination ticket. But other than major holidays, and if we have to be closed for any major maintenance, we are open, and all of that information can be found on our website, which is www.coastalgeorgiahistory.org. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. I so enjoyed our conversation about Molly and the American home front and what life was like 
in coastal Georgia and interior Georgia during World War II. Uh, I hope that our listeners also enjoyed and were intrigued and, and want to go look up more about the home front in World War II. It's fascinating. Thank you so much for having me. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. And you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages. Use promo code THENAGAIN for 15% off your online order. Valid on anything except memberships and handmade items. We'll see you next week for another episode of Then Again. Thanks, y'all.